This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of the Bunker Daily. I'm your host, Nina Schick, the author of Deep Fakes and a Tech Advisor. And for those who don't know, my beat is covering how technology, the internet, and AI are changing politics and society in the exponential age. So today, I'm delighted to bring you an amazing story from the rogue frontiers of cyberspace, a place where criminals and malicious actors have been empowered by technology to significantly up their nefarious activities. This story is one about the good guys fighting back, though, more specifically about how a transnational alliance of national security agencies led by the FBI captured over 800 criminals in one of the biggest, if not the biggest undercover cyber sting operation to date. And to discuss this, my guest today is Dr. Binoy Kampmark. He is a senior lecturer at the School of Global, Urban and Social Studies at RMIT University in Australia. And Dr. Kampmark, or Binoy, if I may, is an expert on international and national security issues, terrorism, the war on terror and politics. Like me, he sees cyberspace as a new arena of 21st century influence and warfare. Welcome, Benoit. It's great to have you here. It's a pleasure being with you. (laughs) Fantastic. Well, perhaps we could start off by warming up our listeners with a quick rundown of your background. And, you know, how is it that you came to be a scholar of the murky criminal happenings of cyberspace? Well, uh, thank you for the question. Uh, I think a lot of this is to do with... um, you know, just an interest in the way, for example, the internet operates. Uh, for example, the key courses I do teach uh, at um, the curiously named RMIT University is very much focused on information technology and the way that it's used and the way that the internet spreads it. So one of the things that I'm very interested in is, uh, of course, not just the way that information is used, but the way it's preserved or the way it's not exposed. So a lot of these things are very much connected with these things. And in addition to that, and I have to also let you know, I also have had connections with you know, WikiLeaks prior in the context of politics and so on. And that's the connection I also have with um, with the erstwhile Julian Assange in Belmarsh Prison. So there is another side there, as it were. <laughs> oh, well, do you mind elaborating a little bit on that? Uh, well, yes. Uh, the In 2013, I was approached by Julian Assange's uh, father, Mr. Shipton, uh, to run for the WikiLeaks party, embryonic, and as it were, stillborn. <laughs> he <laughs> remained embryonic and then wasn't a, a great success. So we did get a few votes. But the point was, and that's very interesting, many people don't know about that. So we ran the election. I was a Senate candidate along with Julian. It's a very strange affair, but uh, very interesting nonetheless. It was a transparency agenda, the idea of open information, greater 
protections for whistleblowers and so on. And not surprisingly, we didn't do that well. So that's that link. So when it comes to these sorts of things, it does interest me rather, I have to say. Yeah. Binoy, can you break it down for us? What is Trojan Horse? Again, a Trojan you know, horse was a, a very sort of, or rather Trojan shield, I suppose, was a very strange sort of thing. It was strange because there was a smugness, as it were, with the, <laughs> with the mm-hmm. particular authorities involved. So we're talking about 16 countries and we're talking about, mm-hmm. you know, led by the FBI. And we're talking about an operation that's run for a few years, you know, involving essentially duping criminal groups. What they do okay, is that they try to, they get an informant, they adulterate, as it were, the particular platform on this particular phone. Okay, so particular technology used for the particular platform is called Anom. It's, it's a phone that receives messages, can be used and so on. And the idea is that, of course, it's off the grid, but it is connected through this particular platform. The interesting thing about this, of course, is that uh, the FBI then essentially lay in the background whilst information was gathered. So 27 million intercepted messages were gathered from something like 12,000 devices or so. So we've got, of course, the razzmatazz, we've got the fanfare, we've got the drugs, we've got the cannabis, the amphetamines, and so forth. We've got the firearms, the luxury cars, and we've got the cash and so on. Also the Bitcoins and all that. What was interesting about this, and, and this is what I find fascinating, was that in a sense, you know, to use a sporting metaphor, it was a bit of an own goal for the authorities because these are the same authorities who have been saying that they want more backdoors to encryption. They want more ways, as it were, to access means of accessing the dark web. And here we have something where they've succeeded in doing, which they're very proud of. So it brings forth this big question about efforts to access encryption technologies and and decryption and so on, which I think is the big trouble here. So with the FBI and the, the, well, the 16 kind of agencies working together, was this, they infiltrated an encrypted network or was this actually a fake encrypted network that they had set up themselves? Yeah, this is a, a, a network that they had set up themselves. I mean, it is available. This was already available. But the point was that it was shown or advertised by the particular, you know, whoever it was, mm-hmm. the agent in question, to be more attractive in terms of communications. So it it was interesting because it also suggested perhaps that the people connected, and we have to see this in due course if they're going to be alive, by the way, we don't know. (laughs) The, Mm -hmm. The issue fundamentally was that they were duped into thinking that this was just simply a more secure system. You mentioned the 27 million messages they collected, uh, over 12,000 devices, and this went on for over three years. Presumably, there were thousands of various criminals and organizations on this Trojan horse network created by the FBI and other security agencies. I mean, how did this ruse go on for so long? How come nobody smelt a rat? Well, I, I think they didn't smell a rat because the, um, and I think this is the big problem with this form of law enforcement is that effectively they were played along with it. It's a difficult issue here because, on the one hand, uh, you know, I have to 
admit that um, I'm not particularly a fan of the law enforcement aspect of things, but I do understand they have a job to do. But what was interesting about this was that they were going on with things. They were effectively monitoring and observing and doing this thing. And the assumption was currying favor. The assumption was simply, well, we just have something that's better than everything else. But then, of course, we will have to see now what happens because you know, the result of revealing, as it were, this sting is that people involved in these particular operations will return to traditional systems, mm-hmm. go back mm-hmm. to Apple, go back to these things because Apple fights for privacy. I mean, just for the listeners, um, it might be interesting to elaborate on, you know, what was the whole, what was the result of this investigation? Was it 800 criminals arrested and all manner of drugs, mm. car? What did they bring in? You know, what did they parade as their kind of victorious uh, bounty, if you will? Well, indeed, indeed, absolutely. So we're talking about 800, as it were, alleged criminals, but also talking about you know, things like 250 firearms, we're talking about an incredible stash, both tangible and digital and so on. And the whole point of this, of course, is just simply to demonstrate, broadly speaking, that they have an eye on these particular operations. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I suppose one of the things that just struck, struck me about these announcements is more based on the fact that it tends to be a surface sort of thing. Mm-hmm. There's always more happening. And the fact that they have to do this as a justification for a broader agenda. I'm not suggesting, by the way, some strange conspiratorial idea here. I'm simply suggesting a very basic law enforcement idea is that we need to have greater powers to access these things. So when they were parading this hall, and so what happened was in various countries, so you had, for example, in New Zealand, in Australia, in the United States, in the UK, and a range of other states as well, People were exposed as having links by virtue of this um, particular revelation. So they mm-hmm. were arrested. There were very public arrests as well. But what struck me about it is that it was very much also, as you say quite rightly, it was a parade. <laughs> it, yeah. uh, to me, it didn't necessarily suggest a revelation other than just not so much giving the game away, but the fact that they had revealed, okay, we have been monitoring you for a while, and that's the nature of it. And getting to the crux of the issue, I suppose you raised it already, you know, where do you draw the line between privacy and encrypted networks run by private companies? I mean, on on the one hand, you can understand why law enforcement desperately wants backdoor access to these networks, right? Signal, WhatsApp, Telegram. Real national security issues on the line. Um, I think, was it ISIS that basically used mm. Telegram to communicate? Uh, mm. On the other hand, the points about surveillance, especially in the aftermath of, you know, some of the big kind of whistleblowing incidents that you've personally been involved in, there's real valid fears for citizens too. So, I mean, what should law enforcement do? You know, how, how do they navigate this space? Where's the right balance in your view? You mentioned a very good point about the balance, but I actually think the balance question is not really much of an issue regarding the authorities. And and this is one of the reasons why this operation demonstrates the point. It also, by the way, was demonstrated in several other instances, including, uh, you know, the San Bernardino incident with the FBI in 2016, which involved the shootings, you know, by Syed Farouk. Mm-hmm. And so on. And that was, of course, Apple being, as it were, chased up about the 
access to the phone, the iPhone there. Apple, of course, refused. Um, it went to court. Eventually, it collapsed, as it were, because the FBI said that they'd found the information they wanted. And it depends which country we're talking about. These authorities outsource. What they do is they go to other states to seek access to these back doors, as it were. Mm-hmm. So you can't do it in the US. So what you do is you do it in Australia because Australia has very, shall we say, friendly laws for law enforcement. Mm-hmm. And even more, as it were, friendly in due course because proposals made by the current government in Australia would make it very, very attractive for law enforcement to break through and oblige tech companies and you know, and so forth, and, and telcos and so on to volunteer, not volunteer, just give over information. The issue about the balance is that the, the tech companies have this issue of the integrity of a system, but then you've got governments, of course, wanting to get into this law enforcement and so on. The point of these revelations is that the government authorities can get into these things. They can expose crime. They do not need more powers. And that's, I think, one of the key points to make. So where do the tech companies sit in this? Like the the Facebooks, um, when they talk about encrypted networks like WhatsApp, they, you know, insist that it's privacy driven. They will never like uh, intercept encrypted messages by its users. And on the other hand, you know, their entire business model is (laughs) based on surveillance (laughs) capitalism and selling the personal data of all their users. (laughs) So we could talk about curtailing government's access to these type of networks and, you know, almost say, well, you know, the tech companies are, are, are doing this job by keeping these networks encrypted. But I mean, how do you fundamentally square that circle? Well, it's a, it's a very interesting point. And the fact of the matter is it's all money. I mean, the, so you've got the tech companies that have the, you know, as you say, surveillance capitalism running their show, but government is not necessarily interested in that, although it is on a certain level interested in keeping it going. So it, it's strange pact because on the one hand, many governments want to control these tech companies but they also like the way things function because in this, so to give you the Australian example, Australia is very proud. The Australian government is very proud of bringing in the so-called media bargaining code where supposedly it controls the way these tech companies behave in terms of revenue and so on. I don't need to go into the details of it. It's something we can reserve for another conversation. But what is interesting is that the Australian government essentially accepts the surveillance capitalism model, but it wants to get something from the tech companies. And one of the things it has tried to do is to get things from the tech companies regarding information through their data retention mechanism. Australia does have a data retention mechanism, and it's very important to realize that. Searches, communications, these things are retained. Not necessarily the the meat of it, but they're retained. Law enforcement mechanism can actually, you know, they can search it out. They can actually apply for it. That's one of the reasons why I've made the point that Australia may have been included as one of the countries in, you know, the Trojan operation. Because the FBI could subvert the mechanisms in the U.S. that prevent mm-hmm. access by going through the, US, the Australian authorities. 
I don't think it's a far-fetched idea because in Australia, you can go through communications far more easily. You can capture them. Law enforcement can access them far more easily. Not just that, they can access the material benefit of it as opposed to the US where you have to go through a, a more complicated mechanism, as it were. This is um, obviously the the MO, isn't it, of the United States Intelligence Services? I remember recently reading a piece, again, that came from the NSA spying scandal, where it turned out that, you know, Denmark and the US was in a similar kind of intelligence sharing venture where they were basically spying on European politicians like Angela Merkel because the undersea cables that connected all North European connections to the US basically were in Danish territorial waters or so. Uh, So the US has many agreements like this, doesn't it, with allies around the world? Yes, it does. Um, So again, one of the revelations from the, you know, from Snowden from 2013, and uh, as you rightly point out in the context of uh, the Danish intelligence service, is very simple. It is that when you have intelligence arrangements like this, what you do is you outsource them or you find another partner to do your work um, in the context of accessing communications. So if you cannot, for reasons related to the nuisance constitution and rights of a particular country and whatnot, what you do is you go around that by accessing the services of an intelligence agency from another country that may be friendly with that uh, with another state and use that mechanism. And this is exactly what the Danish intelligence service has been doing. You play to all sorts of things. You play to ego, you play to priv- you know, prestige, you give that particular intelligence agency some relevance, and then you can sort of, you know, with the Danish intelligence agency, you just tell them, okay, we're going to spy on the Germans, and there's history between the Danes and the Germans. They have no objections with spying on Merkel. It's the old problem. We're back to the same issue that there is no such thing as friendships in these kind of relationships. There's just interests and manipulations, and that's what we see. I'd love to follow up with two questions. One, because, you know, in my own work, I've kind of focused on the information ecosystem itself. And I think just how rapidly it's transformed in the past 30 years has been unprecedented, right? So how do you perceive of this moment from a historical perspective in terms of what is happening to our information ecosystem and the kind of exponential changes that you see? Do you think that society is equipped to deal with the paradigm change, just the scale and rate of change? And um, then secondly, going on from that, Obviously, one of the characteristics of this changing information ecosystem has been an abundance of mis- and disinformation, so bad information. And certainly, you could argue that in open liberal societies like the ones we live in, we've actually seen a phenomenon known as censorship through noise, where the kind of abundance of bad information, unmitigated information is leading to, you know, almost a form of censorship where people don't know what to trust anymore. So I'd love to pick your thoughts on those two broader questions. Okay, two very good questions. What I'll do is I'll combine the answer by linking them. You remind me actually in the questions about an interview that uh, the late Umberto Eco did, in that he put forth the dilemma about the emergence of the internet, the emergence of information. And he said that 
we're, we're faced by two issues here. We're faced by the old issue about, of course, he mentioned the. You know, it's beautifully romantic now, and I have to admit, I. I still love doing that when I have a chance, going to a library, going through a catalogue, but it's virtually impossible these days to do that because you're discouraged. You have information that's available all the way through. So what Echo said in the context here was that you have the issue of Pravda, of course, the uh, um, then Russian, still Russian, of course, paper, of course, supposedly of truth, which is not particularly truthful. You have the New York Times, which is so utterly laden with information you can't go through it. So you have this issue of negotiating disinformation and information you can't go through. So you have to find out the balance. The dilemma that, uh, or the issue more so with the WikiLeaks thing and more broadly with the information ecosystem, is trying to identify how we can make sense of the information, but then debate it. And the problem is that a lot of this is no longer an issue of debate. It's an issue of conviction. And it's a huge problem with the information debates. So that's what I find, certainly what I've been dealing with. When it came um, and when it has come to the issue, for example, my writings on WikiLeaks and the issues on cyber operations, whatever it might be, is that people already have an idea in mind. They just simply, of course, want some kind of meat to convince themselves that it's true. And that's the kind of ongoing trouble certainly I have. And the second thing is that I'm not necessarily convinced that people who have the information are going to do anything about it. And that's perhaps one of the most troubling things for me. Many questions in the press on a daily basis that I see could be answered by a judicious examination of the WikiLeaks cables, for example. Many of those things are there already. You just need to go through them. And yet suddenly a scoop appears. Oh, this happened in, you know, the 1970s. It happened recently in Australia when the ABC, the Australian Broadcasting you know, Commission here, they, they actually mentioned that uh, the former Australian prime minister was an informant for the U.S. government. I said, well, we already knew that because WikiLeaks cables showed him making regular jaunts alcoholically fueled, by the way, to the embassy in Canberra, talking and informing them about uh, Australian politicians. This is the curious thing. The short of it is that I don't really know what to make of it yet, because I think people are not going to necessarily make much of it, because they will be convinced by their various camps and their various ideologies. So I, when I was you know, initially involved with the WikiLeaks project, I have to say that I was optimistic about it. But I, I, as one gets older, I suppose, you realize that people will succumb to their convictions. So I suppose a good place to end it would be to take it back to where we started when you told us about how you stood uh, for the WikiLeaks party in 2013. And I have no doubt that you did so with a kind of noble ambition of standing up for the rights of citizens and individuals in this um, new information ecosystem in which we now exist. But if I could finally just ask your thoughts on, you know, what is the individual to do when on one hand you have this issue of states being able to monitor and surveil your every action, you know, questions about 
whether or not any communications are actually private or encrypted. And on the other hand, you know, we all use these social media behemoths, these platforms, which are all tracking us and monitoring <laughs> us anyway and selling our data. You know, what is the individual to do? How are we to understand this? Well, I think when it comes down to this, and I certainly have been feeling that too, is is that you need to still pursue the particular conviction of politics that you need to need to do. I mean, when it comes down to it, I you know, like Albert Camus. I, I I'm very much a fan of the underdog. I always pursue that. I do know that, of course, with uh, every tweet and you know every post and every marking, you are going to be monitored. But I suppose the thing to realize in this age, and that's perhaps the most profound and disturbing thing of all, is that we can no longer accept this sharp distinction between totalitarian, authoritarian, liberal democracy, and so on, because ultimately you're either able to do what you can or you cannot. That's the fear. In Australia, to give you an example, the police were and have been raiding the Australian broadcasting service and so on. They went in and they took over hard drives, devices, and so on. And this is meant to be a country supposedly free, and yet they did that. So it's important to know that none of us are really safe in what we do, and the only thing we can try to pursue is the conviction that we enlighten and we enable people to understand the seriousness of what is discussed here. Well, it's been fascinating, Benoit, and I think we could, you know, continue for many more hours. But thank you for being with me here today. It's been a pleasure to have you. Interesting and turbulent times for, for the citizen to navigate. Look, it's an absolute pleasure. Brilliant. Thank you so much. Thank you, everyone, for listening. We have a new Bunker Daily out every Monday to Saturday with our main panel show on Tuesdays and a breakout for our sibling cast, Oh God, What Now? on Fridays. Do follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite app so you never miss an episode. Remember, you can back the Bunker on Patreon. Just search Patreon Bunker Podcast and you can get the podcast early and advert-free. Get our splendid merch and access to our live Zooms. Join us next time for another Bunker Daily. The Bunker Daily was presented by Nina Schick. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers, Jacob Archbold and Yelma Sofronievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker Daily is a Podmasters production.